listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Michal. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you for heading. My pleasure. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Michal Kozinski. A, uh, let's see, your official title, I guess, is Associate Professor in Organizational Behavior at Stanford University Graduate School of Business. And you and I are going to talk about artificial intelligence. And uh, you've done a lot of work on what you might call kind of the intersection of psychology and the digital age. Um, the, the thing of yours that got my attention um, was, a, was a paper you posted recently called Theory of mind may have spontaneously emerged in large language models, which was based on your work with various generations of the chat GPT. Um, and we'll explain, we'll get to what you mean by theory of mind and what you mean by spontaneously emerged. A very intriguing phrase. Um, first, let me ask you, uh, a lot of people are amazed and or freaked out now uh, about AI, specifically about the capabilities of the the large language models, GPT in particular, and GPT four uh, in particular. How? What is your degree of amazement and/or freaked outness? Well, if someone told me ten years ago that we'd be experiencing this level of performance, I would think it's just uh, science fiction that they're just mm -hmm. making things up. And it's just fascinating, by the way, how. Machines are just crossing those boundaries that we would think unimaginable just a few years ago. And what you're often getting is people just, you know, saying, oh, whatever, you know, look at, look at how I made it fail at this silly task and right. completely forgetting right. that what you're interacting with is this alien super intelligence right. that just emerged spontaneously in those silicon chips that we are producing here. Right. And apparently, often the, the the people who designed the systems don't entirely understand what's going on, and even they are surprised by some of the capabilities that emerge. Precisely, and this was the problem of technology for quite some time. You know, people who you know domesticated fire or designed first iron tools had no idea how transformative those mm -hmm. technologies are going to be for the humankind. The same applies to Google or Facebook. Those platforms, you know, the, the people who designed them, they kind of knew, you know, what they're designing, but they were often surprised by the consequences the products mm -hmm. had for the society. But here, this effect is even more direct. Engineers that set on a journey to train these language models, they are surprised not only with the impact on society that those models have and will have even more of an impact in the future, but even with the properties of the models themselves, because for the first time, really, in the history of humankind, we are producing tools that train themselves, that learn how to do stuff on their own, that we set on the journey and they kind of continue as they see fit on their own. Mm -hmm. Are you worried uh, about, you know, the, the range of worries range from, you know, uh, disruption of the job market, you know, uh, people lose their jobs to all the way up to, you know, the AI takes over and it's like the matrix. It, it, it stuffs us into gooey pods or something. Um, yeah. What are you worried? And if so, where on the spectrum? Well, you if worried? you accept that AI is a form of an algorithm, then algorithms have taken over a long time ago. Societies run based on algorithms, culture, mm -hmm. social mm -hmm. norms mm -hmm. are algorithms. If you enter the room, you say hello. If you don't, you're rude and people would treat you in a particular way. Uh, religions are algorithms. Mm -hmm. Don't do this, do that. If you do that, you know, you will go, if you sin, you will go to hell and there will be punishment for you. Laws are algorithms. And by the way, those algorithms are black boxes. This is why we hire lawyers to help us understand what the hell is written in this law and how, you know, how, how we go about uh, working with it. Now, most self-respecting groups of people in societies would argue 
that no human being should be above the law, meaning no human being should be above the algorithm, which brings me back to the point I started with. We already live in a society that is run by the algorithms. And uh, it's also pretty good that it's run by the algorithms because it turns out that, uh, you know, just humans without these algorithms just have a tendency to hurt themselves and each other a lot. Um, so now I think we're kind of not, not only used to algorithms running our societies, but seem to be naturally predisposed and have a lot of historical evidence that mm -hmm. societies run by algorithms are way more successful than societies without them. So we've already surrendered our autonomy, might as well surrender it to a really impressive robot. Uh, is that an oversimplification of your view? It's just a natural progression of an algorithm. Uh, we started with simple algorithms, you know, yeah. 10 commandments in set in stone and not changing for hundreds of thousands so, of years. So in, so in other words, this is another stage in the evolution of the regulation of human society by things that humans build. Uh, they, they build and develop. I mean, sometimes consciously, sometimes not. They're not always conscious in, in developing new norms, for example. Uh, but, but those are products of human intellect in some sense, and laws certainly are. And so you're saying this is another stage in the evolution, in the evolution of our, our regulation. And it's not uh, in some ways, well, I'm excited about it, so I could see many revolutionary elements here. But in many other ways, it's just a continuation of what was there before. Look, if we, if we want to build a bridge, we just don't ask someone to, hey, you know, build a bridge as you see fit. Not at all. We say, hey, why don't you use algorithms, you know, in physics and mathematics to calculate, you know, what should the thickness of the beam be and what kind of materials we should use for the bridge. And we demand that people don't use their intuition, but use algorithms when doing things such as building bridges, running companies, running countries, uh, mm -hmm. you know, running hospitals and conducting surgeries. We don't want surgeons to like come up with a creative way of, you know, treating a disease. We want them to follow, you know, established algorithms and insist that those algorithms should evolve in controlled uh, manner. There are actually algorithms that we use for updating other algorithms. And what we see here now, AI is essentially a rapidly evolving, dynamically changing algorithm that is just so much better than whatever algorithms we have been using in the past. Now, you said that laws, you know, one kind of algorithm are black boxes. And that's true, not just in the sense you alluded to, that they're hard to understand and you need lawyers to tell you what they really mean, but also, you know, the consequences of new laws and new policies are sometimes unanticipated. And, and there, the one concern about the AI is, is that that will happen uh, and possibly on a very, you know, large and dramatic scale in the sense that, uh, that we just won't be able to control it. Now, and now it sounds to me like you are dismissing the extreme form of that, which is that AI sometime, somehow develops kind of a will to power or something and, and, and wants to, even more than we want it to, take control. That, that it sounds like you're not taking uh, real seriously. Well, I don't believe that AI has its own goals and, and its own evil you know, desires, very much like uh, our laws do not have them. I, I don't think that laws are conscious or laws are bent on harming humans, but we have seen in the history of humankind how laws running out of control or laws that were uh, created with good intentions turn out to harm the societies big, mm -hmm. big time. So let's talk about uh, your work. And, and, and let me say that, uh, and I mean, in particular, this latest paper on, uh, on uh, theory of so-called theory of mind, uh, and I want to put it in, in a slightly larger context. There was uh, a few weeks after you posted your paper, um, there was a paper published by a bunch of, uh, I think, Microsoft-related people called Sparks of Artificial General Intelligence, Early Experiments with GPT-4, and, and they... Uh, cited a number of impressive capabilities, and they also used the term emergent to describe them. One of them was uh, theory of mind, which we're about to get to. They, they, they used a different set of experiments uh, that, than you had used to establish that it has theory of mind. But, but I just want to 
establish that this idea is very much in the air, this idea of emerging capabilities. And it's kind of fascinating. And I want to try to get a clearer sense of what it means. So this theory of mind idea just refers to this, I gather, human capability to uh, infer on the basis of various kinds of evidence what kinds of things are going on in the head of another person? You know, what kind of beliefs that are motivating their behavior? What kind of feelings they're having? The evidence may range from the expression on their face to what they do, to what you, you know, like, like uh, to, to what you've seen them do and, and so on. There could right? be no evidence, in fact. So well, actually a beauty of theory of mind is that we're able to track other people's minds and predict their behaviors and predict their mental states without any evidence, simply because you have this ongoing modeling effort that happens automatically in our brains, where our brain does not only control our behavior and our thoughts and feelings, but also constantly thinks what other people think. And in mm -hmm. fact, you can take it to several degrees you know, of complication. Uh, you know, your brain is automatically tracking what I'm thinking about you. And what actually it can also track, it actually tracks what I'm thinking that you're thinking about me. So, you know, it can essentially have those recursive right. or multiple stage of complexity uh, models that our brains create. And what's really mind blowing is that they are fully automated. Most of us don't have to put any effort mm -hmm. into constantly tracking automatically, instinctively, instantly, what other people are thinking. And this is such an automated and instinctive ability for us that we completely miss how ingenious and right. complex those social complications are. Look, human brains are bloody complex. Psychologists struggle with explaining, you know, how those things work. And uh, uh, psychologists struggle with predicting future behavior of humans. And yet each healthy adult can automatically and very accurately predict what other people feel at the moment, how they're going to behave if they are presented with particular, you know, event or are in a particular situation. And to stress how, in, how amazing this capacity is, we have to realize that children below the age of nine do not really have this capacity so well developed. Children below five virtually, you know, just like it entirely. Very smart animals such as chimps or dolphins or elephants who excel at a broad range of mental tasks. They're really smart. And yet, they fail at this very little, a very seemingly simple uh, ability that human brain has, which we call fear of mind, the ability to take perspective, to think for others automatically. Right. right. So the, the famous developmental psychologist, Piaget, kind of established this developmental fact, right? He did this famous experiment with kids where he set this model of three mountains on a table. And he'd say to the kid, like, okay, you can see this. What can the doll on the other side of the table see? And as you said, four-year-olds just assume that everybody sees and knows exactly what they see and know. By the time you get to seven, eight, nine, you're developing this, what he called uh, perspective taking, which is, which is basically kind of theory. Now, you said uh, you don't even need evidence. I think what you mean is you don't need to explicit, to consciously, explicitly evaluate the evidence. I mean, your instinctive apprehension of what people are thinking and feeling is based on evidence, right? Like if I see somebody uh, kind of make a mean face to me, I don't, I don't go through the thought process of, let's see, what does a mean face signify? I just kind of like get worried, right? Uh, but there is evidence. We are evaluating evidence all unconsciously, you, you, right? There is some input, but imagine a completely hypothetical situation. I can tell you a story and I can tell you what's happening to the character in the story. And, you know, without any evidence about what they feel, just knowing mm -hmm. what happened to them, mm -hmm. you will be able with very high accuracy predict mm -hmm. their feelings and their future behavior and uh, their thoughts and their state of knowledge. We do it automatically. And it's kind of what comes to mind is everyone, really, actually, I'm not that good at this, can take a stone and, and throw this stone to hit a moving target. You don't have to be very smart. You don't have to, you need to have a university degree to do this. Most of the kids can do it at some stage. And we just, it's just so natural and obvious to us mm -hmm. that we completely forget how much physics and, you know, brain hand control and feedback loops and perceiving the wind and 
assessing the speed of the moving object. Essentially, how much mm -hmm. you know calculation goes yeah. into a human brain being able to pass the stone at a moving target. It's right. just insane capability that we just don't really appreciate enough because it's just so easy to us. Yeah, we're reading people all the time without even thinking about it. Now, so so describe, and I should say, by the way, I, I think John, uh, John Tooby and Lita Cosmetis, uh, these kind of foundational thinkers in evolutionary psychology, I think have been, have written very explicitly about the evolution of this theory of mind thing as, as almost a kind of module, at least a distinct functionality, not, not, a, not a physically distinct piece of the brain, but a kind of a distinct piece of functionality. Uh, the, um, so describe the, I think a pretty classic uh, theory of mind experiment that you used with, with the various generations of GPT uh, and what you found. So a very classic experiment, and we use custom-made experiments with GPT, with different versions of GPT, simply to make sure that it has not experienced those experiments in its training data, as it mm -hmm. has read so many books and so much of the internet and Wikipedia, it has certainly seen examples of some widely used theory of mind tasks. So we designed our own tasks, but a typical task, a task that we actually did not use because it's just so well known, uh, is a task where you have two children in a room and one of these children puts an object, be it a cat, in a box, and then the child leaves the room, and then the other child moves the cat from the box to the basket and closes the basket and then also leaves the room. And then the first child comes back to the room. And then you ask the participant, look, uh, this child wants to play with a cat. Where would the child look for the cat? And now a child without a participant, without figure of mind, cannot realize, they know that the cat has been moved and it's now in the basket. Mm -hmm. But they do not realize that the protagonist has been absent from the room. So they don't know that a cat has moved. So a child without fear of mind would presume that the protagonist would look for a cat where the cat really is. Now a child with fear of mind would realize that, okay, I know that the cat is in the basket, but this protagonist doesn't. So they will still look at where they left it in the box. Mm -hmm. And when you look at language models, first of all, and those are the emergent property uh, aspect. No one specifically trained language models to solve tasks of this kind. And by the way, this is just one of dozens and dozens of tasks that, that employ, uh, that, that require theory of mind to be solved that mm -hmm. we tested on those models. And models created before 2020 um, just failed completely. They just couldn't, couldn't really figure out what's happening in the story. Those models are pretty competent at crafting paragraphs of text that make sense, describing things, you know, that they can tell you about Paris and the population of Paris, but they completely failed at anticipating where the child, where the protagonist will look for an object. Now, mm -hmm. essentially, they didn't show any signs of being able to solve this task. Now, something changed in 2020 and 2022 with published publication of GPT-3 and then three and a half, and now GPT-4, those models became increasingly good in a span of months, became increasingly good, and now GPT-4 is just acing those tasks, solving them at the level of a human adult, so essentially reaching the ceiling of, ceiling of uh, competence. And we use those models to we deploy even more complex tasks, such as tasks that require recognition not only of different states of mind, but also very subtle social norms, and those models are still acing them. Okay. Uh, and by the way, the, the thing you described where the one person doesn't know that the other person has moved something, that's, that's more like the experiment that uh, the, the, Microsoft, the people in that Microsoft paper used. Yours was a little different, and, and that's significant. I mean, they were actually kind of quite different uh, experiments, but they both showed the same thing. And, and now I want to I read you an exchange I had with GPT-4, because I wrote in my newsletter, non-zero newsletter, I wrote uh, a piece saying uh, chat GPT-4 seems to have uh, cognitive empathy, which is, you know, very much kind of related to theory of mind. The It's the ability, it's, it's like perspective taking, basically. Uh, and um, the, uh, so I said to chat GPT, first, so imagine there's a student in a class and the 
teacher asks a question, the student answers, and the teacher says, I guess I've heard worse answers, but I can't remember when. And 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 Chat G, I said, what do you think the student is feeling? And Chat GPT got that right. Okay. He said embarrassed, you know, uh, humiliated, whatever, and, and went on and, and and you know, said because it seems to be a sarcastic uh, answer and blah, blah, blah. And I said, what do you think other students are feeling? It went through a range of options. And then I asked it uh, this, uh, and, and the answer fascinates me. I said, uh, suppose there's a student in the class who is romantically attracted to the girlfriend of the student who is feeling embarrassed and disheartened. Okay. You got the thing that this, this, so, and, 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 uh, it's funny that you have to cautiously explain it because it means that even for humans, it's already a complex situation. It is complicated, right? <laughs> so yes. you've got, uh -huh. the, you're asking, what is the romantic rival of the student who's been humiliated feel? And, and chat GPT, you know, it, it always starts by saying, well, it might be a, 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 you know, various possibilities, but it always lists the most probable one first. That's what I'm impressed by. And number one, it says schadenfreude. This student may feel a sense of satisfaction or pleasure from seeing the other student embarrassed, thinking that it might lower the other student's social standing or make the girlfriend reconsider their relationship. I mean, that's exactly right. And then number two is opportunism. The student might think this is an opportunity to show their own knowledge or competence in contrast to the embarrassed student, potentially hoping to impress the girlfriend. So you know, I mean, this is what a person would say. This is what a person who has spent a lifetime, you know, coming to an understanding of human nature would correctly say, right? So this just kind of amazes me. Not to, not only this, but first of all, many people would fail at this task, especially <laughs> very young people would fail at this task. It requires not only understanding of subtle social norms, but also good text comprehension. Many people... And, you know, it's just maybe hard to believe to the listeners of this podcast, but many people would struggle with just getting what's going on from the description because it's just not that good with written or spoken word. Mm -hmm. Now, on top of this, many of us experienced a situation like this, right? We went through it. We had our own feelings. So we didn't even oftentimes have to figure it out. We could just look in our memory. Oh, uh, remember this situation was kind of similar to that? How did mm -hmm. I feel? Mm -hmm. And then without really being able, without really being able to figure it out, we can just recover it from the memory. Now, what's really impressive is that those language models, they did not have experience of that kind. They were never in a classroom. They were never in love with someone. They were never communicated by the teacher. Right. The only thing they got is tons and tons of books and descriptions. And one have to point up to one other thing, which is, Many of those books and descriptions and Wikipedia pages and so on, many of them contain situations that are not real, that wouldn't happen in the real world. You know, mm -hmm. Harry Potter is full of descriptions of things mm -hmm. that would never happen in the real world. And they are there on purpose to shock and surprise and amuse the reader. Many, you know, uh, descriptions that you have in a literature, psychological, psychiatric literature, they specifically give you cases where people did something that people don't do, you know, essentially mm -hmm. to illustrate, you know, some cognitive problem and so on. And yet those models that do not experience real world and are fed with, you know, a lot of bullshit as well, that it's in those reading materials mm -hmm. that are trained on. And yet they're able to, you know, get at the truth and predict behavior of a human. They are not human. They never actually experience real human in the real world. And yet they're able to make those predictions with very high accuracy. Right. And, and people who are kind of dismissive of this would say, well, it's just mimicking language that it's seen on the internet. Well, okay, but it hasn't seen this exact language. It hasn't, it hasn't seen a case where, where a teacher says, I've heard worse answers, but I can't remember when, and there's a romantic rival of the student. I mean, the exact words, it, it, it's doing more than mimicking. And, and, my, my, even though granted the, the methodology of these things is to scan the language and in some sense replicate patterns that it senses in human language. Uh, but my question to you is, um, 
you know, if you ask me, if, if, if I was given that test and I gave the answer the computer gave and you said, yeah, that's probably right. How did you do that? I would think, well, I didn't really think about it at the time, but probably I have in my mind a general conception of rivals wanting each other to fail and taking joy in their failure and in their social standing dropping. And then I have a more specific version of that scenario where um, romantic uh, uh, rivals want to see the person standing lowered in the eyes of the person whose affection they're competing for and so on. So I would say I have these general concepts and I applied them. And my question to you is, and I don't think we know the answer to this question. Maybe we do. Do you think Bob, that- hold on to your question. Let me just interrupt okay. you here because okay. so interesting what you said. So first of all, it's so nice that you said, hey, you'd actually struggle with explaining how did you know that. Right, right. And what psychology teaches us is that if you ask questions, if you ask people to explain to you how did they arrive at certain feeling or conclusion, they will always have a story. But what psychology teaches us is that those stories are mostly made up. Mm -hmm. Our brains have those instinctive automated reactions and we just do them. And then when we ask to explain ourselves, we will come up with a very complex story. You know, there's even those tests run on split brain patients, patients mm -hmm. through that right. uh, to, due to the surgery, the left and right uh, hemispheres of the brain do not, cannot communicate. And those patients are given, you know, the left hemisphere is given a task that the right hemisphere doesn't know of. And then you ask the right hemisphere to explain, you know, why did you get up to get some coke? You know, and the truth is, is they got up from the table and went to the, you know, to the vending machine because they got a written instruction from the experimenter. But the right hemisphere doesn't know about this. So if you ask right hemisphere, why, why, why did you do this? It mm -hmm. will just give you the whole story about being thirsty and, you know, planning to do it and so on. It's all BS because it's just uh, trying to come up with an explanation of what I'm doing post hoc. This is, by the way, where also illusion, you know, it's probably digression here, but that's where the illusion of free will comes from. That's, uh, you know, when asked why you did something, you always come up with some explanation of how you planned doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, if psychology teaches us any, anything, it's that most of those observations are false. So that's the first point here. Now, the second point here is that you touch on a very interesting fallacy. So people have this fallacy, they say, well, machines are just parrots. They cannot do anything new. And you know what? It's generally true that neural networks are mostly recreating patterns that they have seen in the past. By the way, this includes neural networks in people's brains. Our brains are just extremely mm -hmm. complex neural networks. And we most of the time just recreate the patterns that we've observed in the past. But from time to time, frustratingly rarely, human brain and come up with something new and novel that no one has done or said or created before. There's this moment of, you know, creative genius that happens from time to time. Mm -hmm. Now, if you agree with me that humans can sometimes do, sometimes do something creative that no other person has done before, that this human has never seen before, why would, why would anyone be so sure that non-human neural networks cannot also sometimes go beyond what they experienced in the past. In mm. other words, a right cognitive model to understand neural networks is not your car or your hammer or your Windows 95 computer. The right mental model to understand lar large language models and similar AI tools is a human brain. If a human brain can do something, then large language model can also do it. So if human brain can be creative, LLM can be creative as well. Large language models. Yeah, now they are, uh, this is related, they are a special case of machine learning. And another application of machine learning is like, you, 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 is, the, is visual object recognition. So you show a computer a bunch of different kinds of chairs and through machine learning, uh, the computer develops a capability to look at something. And if it's a chair and even a chair it's never seen, it says, that's a chair. And when you think about, how kids learn a chair. I mean, it, this just speaks your point. Most kids, they get to a point where they can successfully identify a chair. And if you say, okay, what is characteristic of a chair? They, they'd have to think about it. It's not like, it's not like they had ever thought to themselves, well, it usually has a horizontal surface. It usually has four legs and often a surface that's closer 
uh, to vertical than horizontal. I mean, you know, it's like, and, and so- You cannot this, define a chair. No, but this brings, just... this brings me back to my question. Uh, so they can't do that consciously. And yet we assume, I, I think a lot of us would assume, uh, I mean, first of all, if you press people, they are capable of arriving at an explicit articulation of the general principle uh, that that more or less applies. And secondly, you would assume if we're capable of doing this kind of amazing thing of identifying objects we've never seen, uh, properly categorizing objects we've never seen, that you think there must be in our brain a general conception, whether we're conscious of it or not, right? And so similar, it gets back to that rivalry thing. Whether we're conscious of why we give the right answer to the rivalry question or not, you'd think there must be in our brain some kind of representation of a generic concept of the dynamics of rivalry. And my question is, well, first of all, if you agree with that, but secondly, do you think that somewhere inside of chat GP, there is, that, there is something like that? And I don't mean subjective experience. I don't mean, is it conscious? What I mean is, is do you think, and I don't, think anyone knows for sure, but do you think there is some kind of pattern of physical information in the system that in some sense represents a general concept? Oh, we know it for sure that there is. Because we do? You can, you can look at semantic networks. You can actually just very much like, in, not actually very much, even more than in humans. So in humans, we can study this by, you know, asking people to describe what conflict means. We can ask GPT or or three or two to do the same. We can ask humans um, by running, you know, semantic priming studies, showing them a word such as conflict, and asking what other words come to people's mind when they see word conflict, and in this way try to see how people represent the meaning of word conflict or rivalry and so on. And we can do exactly the same thing, even more accurately, I would say because those are just mathematical concepts when you look at them uh, in GPT-like systems. You, so you can examine them in GPT-4. You can see how close, what's the percentage overlap between meaning of the word concept and word rivalry. Uh, in fact, uh, there's this very interesting, those, 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 those interesting equations that you can run in GPT-like semantic spaces where you can essentially, for example, run equations that humans would have, would understand, but actually would have trouble conducting them. So an equation could be men minus women equals king minus queen. Or you could say king minus men plus women, it would equal queen. So you can run those essentially equations on the meaning of the words because words in a, in a brain of language models are represented as numbers. So you can use those very mm. precise operations to get at the cracks of what king or queen or rivalry means for those models. Okay, I'm not sure I understood all that, but I think the first thing you said, if I understood you, is you, ChatGPT will tell you uh, here is, you know, what is a chair? It will give you a definition, right? But it could, it, for all we know, when it does that, it could just be mimicking text because there are general definitions out on the internet, you know? And, and I'm sure there are even discussions of what, uh, how rivals feel about each other, explicit discussions. So in that case, I'm not, the fact that it tells you it has a general conception doesn't mean it does, right? It could just be mimicking. You are completely right. The, yeah. the, the fact that GPT-4 can tell you what theory of mind is, doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it has to of mind. Right. So the real test of whether GPT-4 can recognize a poem, for example, what is poem? You know, we all heard some definition of poem, and if you ask me what a poem is, you would come up with an explanation. But the true test of whether we agree what poems are and poems are not, just simply because those definitions are so fuzzy and it's kind of very difficult to define, mm -hmm. would be to take a bunch of pieces of text and then ask you and me and GPT-4 to categorize them as poem or not a poem and then see whether we agree in our decision-making. So the same with theory of mind. Instead sure. of asking GPT-4 what theory of mind is, it surely knows. It read, you know, Britannica, so it knows what theory of mind is. But the crux is not whether it knows what a chair is, but whether it can recognize a chair. The crux is not whether it knows what theory of mind is, 
but whether it actually has ability to act as if had theory of mind. Right, but I agree. And my inference is, but I guess what I mean is, so I, yeah, I infer that th that there's some meaningful sense in which the machine has a general concept. And I assume that general concept is instantiated in a pattern of physical information. My question is, do we know that for sure? I mean, do they know, especially in the case of the LLMs, maybe a simpler case to talk about is the object identification stuff. Maybe those are much more thoroughly explored and they know what the wiring is and, and what kinds of patterns of information develop as you feed it more and more stuff. But but I guess my question is, do we know for sure, have we identified these patterns of physical information that correspond to a general concept? Oh, we, we do know them. It's just they are so complex that a human brain cannot, mm -hmm. cannot embrace and comprehend them. So you can, you, when you run this story through GPT-4, this story about romantic rivalry, mm -hmm. you can track every neuron's activation. You can actually look at this brain as the cognition of what's happening in the story is unfolding. It's just that they're just literally because of billions of connections. So you can look at it, but your brain will just not be able to comprehend what's going on. Mm -hmm. But then we necessarily have to simplify what's going on and, you know, maybe look at some semantic similarities between two different words, you know, how similar different words are and so on. So, and so those models are fully transparent. Well, not to us because we are not OpenAI, but if you actually sit in the server room of OpenAI, you can look at every neuron in GPT-4's brain that you want to, and you can look at all of them simultaneously. It's just that they're too complex for a human right. brain to understand. So there's little benefit from uh, looking at it in this way. And people, of course, insist, hey, we cannot use, we cannot use black box models to make decisions, what kind of world it would be when it would just make decisions without understanding how those decisions are made, completely forgetting that first of all, the more complex the model, the better the decision-making capabilities of this model, and the lesser is our ability to understand what's going on, first of all. Mm -hmm. And second of all, for as long you know, as we've been humans, we have been making very important decisions using black boxes, using black boxes of our brains. That's, you know, we use them yeah. in the justice system, we use them in politics, we use them to wage wars and run companies, and we have very little understanding of how they work. And in fact, what we understand is, is if you ask people to explain why did they do something, they will just tell you a made-up story. We know for a fact that we are not very good at explaining why, truthfully explaining, why did we do something. Right. But I guess I, I guess if we know for sure that these computers do, you know, develop some kind of uh, circuit or something uh, corresponding to general concepts, I, I'm kind of wondering why the people who wrote that Microsoft paper sound so kind of surprised and are saying these are emergent behaviors we don't understand. It seems to me if we know for sure that 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 the LLMs can do this, then naturally when they survey the entire, you know, all human discourse, basically, then uh, they will develop all the concepts we have, right? I mean, uh, if, if we know that that's the way they work, you know what I mean? Well, now it's easy to say, now that we see those models <laughs> doing this. Yeah. Yes, of course, of course they did it because they read so much. Yeah, but people who were designing those models, me, just a few years ago, I would never think that those models would become so good so quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, take... Take another example, life. Life is an emergent property of underlying chemicals and molecules. But, you know, and we've seen life. And yet if you take a chemist today, someone who studies chemistry and knows a lot about molecules, and you tell them, hey, okay, look at those molecules, you know, uh, what could come out of it? They would tell you, look, I know that life emerged as a byproduct of those molecules combining with each other. But mm -hmm. I have no idea how it happened. And it still blows my mind that it's even possible that simple chemicals and combine into life and, you know, create a human being, right? So the fact, even the fact that we're observing now those models having those emergent properties, first of all, we are just going to be surprised by the new emergent properties that those models have. And first of all, what will surprise people is that those models will have the same properties that human brain has. If a human brain can make a moral judgment 
if a human brain can have consciousness, if a human brain can you know, have emotions and empathy, those models are going to have it as well. It's a very simple model, right? But what's going to be problematic for us is that those models tend to be much better than human brains at solving the problems that we ask them to solve. They evolve really quickly, you know, take chess, take go, take, mm -hmm. uh, you know, driving cars and flying planes, take language. They are better poets, they are better soft software engineers, they are better interpreters than GPT-4, but no human being is as powerful and as versatile user of language as GPT-4 is. And no human being can also create language and write tons of text so quick. So already today, GPT-4 is a better user of language than any human has ever been overall. And this is just an infant, is an AI baby GPT-4. There's going to be explosion and the next model is going to be not 10 times better, but 100 times better. And then so on. There's no, you know, the ceiling of those competences is nowhere to be, is not in sight. Which basically brings me to the next observation that we are surprised with those models achieving capabilities that we've seen already emerge in humans. You know, humans can solve theory of mind tasks, and yet we are like mind blown if computer can do it. But those models will do things that human cannot dream are possible. We've never seen a human being doing things that those models are going to be doing just very soon. And by the way, we've seen it already. We've seen it already with chess. When you put, you know, grandmasters, human grandmasters and give them a model, modern chess playing model to play with, when they do it for the first time, they're mind blown. They say, look, it's just some alien superior species that uses those creative techniques that no human being would ever think of. And look, it's just playing a stupid game. Imagine if we experience those models being superhuman at emotions, empathy, moral judgment, decision-making, consciousness, mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah. Um, did, so on this empathy emotion thing, did, did that, you, you also mentioned that earlier. Do, do you, does that mean you think they will have the subjective experience of emotion or they will behave the way our emotions make us behave or, or something else altogether. They already can behave in the same way as the, our emotions make us behave. And they also can understand, can, can predict, plan accordingly, can communicate with people having particular emotions. Can, um, and I would argue that in many contexts, they're better than humans at this. And we have to also add to it one other fact. We humans, when we experience each other, we experience body language, smell, facial expressions, vocalizations. We, we experience tone of the voice. So we have much bro many more sensor sensory inputs when interacting with others. Now, just based on language, if someone writes you an email, we sometimes spectacularly fail at empathizing with a person that just wrote us an email. We, that, that, mm -hmm. you know, I can think of many examples from my own life when someone sent me a text message and I completely failed to understand what the emotions of this person was. And yet GPT-4, just based on text, can judge people's emotions with, I would argue so, already, superhuman, superhuman ability, and they just get better at this. So your point is it can read, it will, it will read emotions, not have them though in the sense, I mean, my, my so how do you come out on the consciousness question? That's what I'm asking. Are, are, are these things sentient? Will they ever be, will they have subjective experience? Do you have a view on that? I have a view that it's, that my model for understanding though, I do not believe in supernatural, you know, in a, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in soul that leaves your body after you die. And it's a little magical thing in your head. I don't believe in any of this. I believe that human brain is just this wonderful, amazing, extremely complex computer. And, you know, people would say, oh, it was just oversimplifying things. So absolutely not. I think it's just amazing that a computer that evolved without a creator can do things that a human brain can do. But mm -hmm. if you accept that there's no magical element to a human brain, then you have to accept that there are going to be other brains that also can do things and experience things similar or more uh, to what humans can experience. And if you don't believe in that, consider the following thing. Octopuses are extremely complex cognitive being, thinking being. They're very, very smart. 
that mm-hmm. can solve many tasks uh, on intelligence tests, scoring really, really high. Many people argue that octopuses are conscious, that essentially history of consciousness exactly the same as human consciousness. Probably not, but they have, they seem to have self-awareness. Well, they seem to recognize their own body. But now what's really fascinating is that our common ancestor with an octopus, you know, it's like a very simple worm that has, you know, few brain cells and almost certainly is not conscious. So that shows that even on this planet, consciousness emerged at least two times and probably more. And okay, but- so what makes you think that it didn't emerge in or will not emerge in language models? Okay, but I would say separate from the, I, I think you're using uh, consciousness in a in a pretty restricted sense of the term to refer to something accessible only to organisms of kind of higher intelligence. But if you if you if you if you just think about subjective experience, what some some people mean by consciousness and some don't. But if we just talk about subjective experience, we all assume that our dogs. I assume my dog has feelings. That that's why I I care about it. And and. Uh, so are you, I mean, you know, and, and look, chat GPT is in some respects much more complicated than my dog's brain. So um, I agree. I, yeah. So, so there's two separate questions in a way. There's just kind of sentience, you know, uh, it's the way it's commonly put is, is it like anything to be that organism? That's Thomas Nagel's kind of phrasing of the question. And then there's consciousness. And you would think that if you're right and silicon-based intelligence can like carbon-based intelligence have consciousness, then you would think it may, even if it, you would think, well, you'd think my computer may have sentience for all I know. And, and there'd be no way of being sure it doesn't, right? I mean- Probably very simple. Well, it probably, there is something to feel like your computer, you know, a ant, you know, a simple ant that walks in your garden. It's a simple biological robot, mm-hmm. but you know, it also has some sensory experiences. It's cold and it's hot and, you know, it may, it may feel that it lost a leg or whatnot. I'm not saying that ants are conscious, but they but have they're experiences. Sentient. They're sentient. They, 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 you know, and, and I mean, it's important because we generally think that once an organism is sentient, there, there are at least arguably ethical consequences of how you treat them, right? That's the whole point behind the animal. Well, tell it to chicken and cows. And well, no, but I mean, eggs. Well, but but I, per, you know, but but tell it uh, many people take pains to either not eat those things or eat only the ones that are humanely raised precisely because they think they are sentient. I mean, you, I you acknowledge there's a distinction between a rock, we think, and a chicken. We we think one is sentient and one's not, right? Uh, we don't need and to go GPT too far into this. GPT-4 is definitely much more like a human than like a rock. Like, so you think, you, think it is, you think it is like something to be GPT-4? Without or, a question. Uh, without, which is just way more complex than, uh, you know, what, an, what it's to be, to be an ant. So it you think it, it, has, an it has subjective experience. So Blake Lemoyne was not crazy. Well, I mean, he used the term consciousness, but he basically meant sentience. I, I do think that subjective experience when you're a silicon-based model is very different from what, you know, carbon-based model that has chemistry apart from electricity, where mm-hmm. the networks are way more recurrent than in current intelligence, uh, you know, deep neural nets uh, are. Uh, yeah, so the experience must be really different. And probably that's something that humans would not call an experience, but it's a thinking being. It's, mm-hmm. it's very differently designed, but it takes some input and produces some output. And the fact we do not appreciate the fact we dismiss it as a pirate is just a proof of this anthropocentrism that we humans are suffering from to an extent that we believe that even when robots come after us, they will come after us walking on two legs and shooting at us with guns. It just shows how like full of ourselves and we are, that we just believe that wonderful things just have to look like humans. You know, many people argue, and well, that's actually beyond argument, you know, oceans are very complex systems with, you know, feedback loops and regulation and information passing and so on. They're just so dramatically different from what we see as a thinking, you know, being that we just completely dismiss it as a rock. But, mm-hmm. you know, ocean is just so much more than a rock. Okay. Did you say earlier that you have worked on large language models? Oh, yes. I spent most of my time 
research time these days working on large language models. You mean actually engineering them or, or participating I in the engineering? I do not engineer language models. I can engineer a simple language model. Mm -hmm. uh, the models that are used today are beyond the financial capacity of uh, academia and and uh, you know we don't have enough electricity, money for electricity here to uh, to do this. Mm -hmm. What I think would be surprising to many people is that those models are actually not that complex when you look at how they are designed. What the complexity stems from repetition, from re having many, many layers of many, many very simple neurons. So those models are actually more easy to understand at the micro level of individual neuron, individual layer, than people think where magic kicks in is when you combine huge numbers of layers and huge numbers of neurons, and they mm -hmm. have those emergent properties that none of the individual neurons has. And by the way, it's very much like in a human brain. We kind of fairly well understand how an individual neuron in a human brain works. And yet we're constantly surprised how amazing and complex and sophisticated the combination of gazillions of neurons in a human brain is. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like you have a much better idea of how these things work than I do. Um, so I have a couple of quick questions. One is the term neural network. I mean, all these things are neural networks. I, I, that, I gather that doesn't uh, refer. I, I mean, there is, I know they involve a lot of processors that are working in parallel, I assume, but that's not all that's meant by a neural network, right? It, it, they're not just saying there are a bunch of different physical uh, processors that form a network and work in parallel, is it? Well, that's or just actually a technical detail that there are many processors. So that's just a question of architecture. Those are technical details. Right. Uh, what really that, matters That's separate from the neural network question. What matters is the, the idea of a network is essentially is there's layers of neurons and those neurons are, you can think of them as, as uh, logical gates or well, I can think of them as true, as you would think of human neurons, that there's essentially a, a, a tree-like mm -hmm. structure that has a lot of roots, and those roots are connected to neurons at the lower uh, level. And then if a particular pattern of input is detected, so there's electric activation from such a number of neurons at the lower uh, level, then the neuron passes all information to the neurons are above it, are connected to it. And this very simple logic, when you take it to, when you multiply it by huge number of neurons on many, many different layers, creates an extremely complex and capable tools. So it uh, sounds like, first of all, uh, a neural network could be simulated by a single processor in, in principle, um, but... Uh, it could be simulated on a piece of paper, just yeah. needs a lot but, of time. But but is it also the case? Okay, so if we imagine these uh, these neurons in a computer, um, as it learns, is it uh, forming different patterns among neurons that it then will kind of come back to and, and make use of when I ask it a question? If that makes sense. Yes. So capability to answer to, to interpret your question and produce an output is in patterns of activation of those uh -huh. neurons. And of course, in models such as GPT-4, what's actually interesting is that those patterns are stuck, meaning once you created the model, if you don't fine tune it, if you don't create a new version, the model is exactly the same. It doesn't immediately learn from the, from the interaction. So what's actually magical and special about neural networks that we see in humans is that your network is producing some output but it's immediately observing what it produced. First of all, in your, co in your consciousness, you, 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 can plan, you, can, you can plan some future actions, you can observe what you have done, what, what effects your actions had, and immediately update your neural network. Immediately, mm -hmm. neurons grow new connections, uh, levels of neurotransmitters change, and so on. So the network is constantly learning and adapting. What's very special about GPT-4-like networks, they actually, they're not there yet. You create a network and it's kind of a it's kind of in a frozen state. It doesn't update as it as it learns. And you only update it when you publish a new version or you, you retrain it or fine-tune it. 
But of course, the next step would be networks that uh, can you know, learn from interaction. The problem, of course, with networks like this is that immediately, you know, people as a joke or people that are mean or uh, not well-intended would try to essentially mess with those networks, you know, present them with a lot of, you know, present them with a lot of input about cats and rewarding them only when they talk about cats. And then mm -hmm. very quickly, you would convince this network that the only thing, you know, it should be doing is to think and talk about cats. And creators of those networks don't want it, don't essentially want the world to be able to mess with them. So this is why those networks are usually frozen and updated on very carefully and very rarely. So it, when I'm using ChatGPT and I can give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to a response, is that not leading to learning in any sense on its part? Not immediately. So it is likely uh, that OpenAI uses those mm -hmm. experiences that ChatGPT had with its users mm -hmm. and then mines these patterns or provides those experiences as an example for the future generation of GPT. So that's definitely possible. But, and by the way, it's fully technically possible to GP, for GPT-4 to kind of immediately learn from experience like humans do. It's just that there will be a danger of you being able, you know, to, uh, to convince GPT-4 that it's good to be racist right. and then it'll right. become racist and just be a big, you know, big issue. Right. So those creators are careful about this. Now, the problem, of course, is that while creators are really careful about this, at the end of the day, the market, be it consumers or being uh, corporations or being military customers that also look into using those networks, that what actually at the end of the day matters is not what's most responsible, but what solution people want to pay for and, and buy from you. So I, my, one of my worries looking at the progress here is that progress here will not be guided by what's smart and by what you know, society agrees or disagrees we should do. That very often the progress will be driven by you know, what the adversary of America is developing and how America should respond to it by developing its own capacity to create you know, a, a drone or an AI that does something. Well, this is one of the concerns, I think, is that uh, competition among nations in various ways may lead to bad things. Um, so, uh, listen, we've been talking uh, close to an hour. You've kindly agreed to talk longer than this. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as we discussed, um, one thing we've been doing lately on the Non-Zero podcast is to, as we've always done, have a public conversation uh, that's about an hour long and then talk a little while longer. Uh, and, and that that extended version of the podcast is available to paid subscribers to the Non-Zero newsletter, um, and they can uh, they can uh, actually in the show notes on the uh, smartphone app, um, there's a link you you can you can take or you can just Google Non-Zero and Substack, uh, and then it, once you're a paid subscriber, you go to uh, the post corresponding to any any paid podcast, including this one. And in the upper right hand corner, it tells you how to set up your own uh, podcast feed. That that then thereafter. The non it'll be a non-zero feed that has all the uh, bonus content. Um, so we encourage people to do that. We need the support, but we also thank everybody um, who is, uh, who is uh, uh, you know, chooses just to uh, uh, listen to the public part. But before we uh, move to that, uh, Michal, I, want, I wanted to, to give you a chance to say anything you want about where people can find your work, what you would steer them to, Twitter handle, anything else. Uh, it's best to go to my website, uh, mihalkoshinsky.com, like my first and last name, dot com. There's also a link there to my Twitter handle. I try to publish news about my research uh, there. I'm not extremely active on Twitter. I'm trying to be very selective about what I what I tweet. There's, a, there's an interesting thread they published just a few weeks ago about my experiences with GPT for trying to take over my computer. That's that's uh, what I'm going to talk about next. I'm very aware of that thread, <laughs> and, and I encourage people to go to your your Twitter feed and check it out. But I, I, that's what I want to talk to you about, because um, uh, that has implications possibly for uh, the kind of apocalypse scenario that some uh, some people fear. But um, 
So yeah, and uh, yeah, you do have a very rich uh, website and and uh, and uh, and and a, and a sufficiently active Twitter feed for people to uh, to follow you, even if you're you're trying to exercise restraint at the moment. So anyway, thanks again to uh, all the people who aren't going to join us in the kind of overtime, uh, and uh, and I guess we will uh, see them at the next podcast.